um, you get kind of um, a bad feeling that what have I done here, you know, when you see all the guards and uh, all the uh, big machine guns and the dogs and they're waiting for you. Uh, everybody had to stay at the Vero Hotel and they had all of the rooms wired so that they were keeping tabs on you. Moscow was, was just paranoid about being tagged again. It, it was a repressive uh, society. Uh, I know I was followed there and we knew we were being listened to. Anyone that worked in an office, uh, the, the typewriters were locked up uh, on the weekends for fear that, that they could be used to, to print uh, a type and uh, uh, anti-government propaganda. Pictures of what the Republic of Estonia was like when it was occupied by the Soviet Union. You're listening to Refracted Reality, I'm Josh Kloss, and on this episode we're exploring music. We start off with a story of music and revolution. I talked with Gilda Carew, who is Estonian-American. She grew up here in the United States. Most of the time when I was growing up, when I'd say I was Estonian, people would look at me with a very quizzical look and like, what's that? Estonia is a small country located on the Baltic Sea in Northern Europe. Gilda's parents were refugees to the United States, but she still had relatives in Estonia. And when she visited them, there was something that they had in common, even though they grew up on opposite sides of the globe. We went to Estonian school, and one of the first things you do in Estonian school is you sing. You learn how to sing. Uh, even at home, um, <clears throat> you sing songs. Um, in church, of course, you sing. But um, what was really wonderful was when I went to Estonia, when it was uh, still occupied that uh, in the 1970s, uh, my relatives and I sang, and we knew the same songs, uh, the old songs. And so it was just wonderful to sit around a dinner table and sing songs. And they were amazed that I knew the songs coming from the United States. While Estonians of the United States were doing their best to keep Estonian culture alive, life in Estonia was very different than here. In the late 80s, it was a very, um, it was a very sad place. Um, I actually traveled there around 1977, and uh, you know, you couldn't really speak very freely. Religion was discouraged, um, and uh, and it was all run by the Soviet Union, or they had their people in place to do that. And there were also shortages of uh, goods. I remember my aunt uh, seeing oranges someplace, and that was like, oh, there are oranges, and right away we had to get some. And I thought to myself, I, I really hadn't appreciated what we have in the United States uh, until I saw that, and I thought, my goodness, you know, if I don't like the oranges in this store, I just go to another store, and I have a choice between quality and um, and prices and things like that. And there, they were just happy when they so had consumer goods like that. When Gilda visited Estonia, it was being occupied by Russia and the Soviet Union, but it wasn't the first time that Estonia had been occupied by another country. The the Estonian people have been there for. Uh, uh, certainly over 5,000 years. That's Seam Suit, honorary vice consul for the Republic of Estonia. He's located here in the United States. Too frequently, we've been been uh, subjugated by uh, uh, the, our, our neighbors. So we've been occupied by, by the, the Danes, the Swedes, the, uh, uh, the Russians, um, Germans, and, and, and so forth. 
So what do you do when you're the punching bag for all of your neighboring countries? You sing. It started in the 1800s under the Tsarist rule of Russia. It was about the time that, that Lincoln was, was president of the United States, uh, but Estonia had its first uh, song festival. Uh, and that stirred up a lot of patriotism, a lot of feeling for, for our own uh, culture and, and language, which is so different from Russian and so different from from all of our neighbors, except uh, in, in Finland. Uh, the Estonians, Finns, uh, and more distantly, the Hungarians are related. Uh, but uh, uh, we're not Scandinavian, we're, we're Nordic. Uh, but with that first song festival, uh, uh, about 150 years ago, uh, the, the the sense that we're Estonian and, and we should try to maintain our culture and and, and so forth uh, was I think really an important uh, milestone and and remarkably from from that um, mid eighteen uh, hundreds uh, the the importance of of song uh, reinforced the sense of national identity uh, and by nineteen eighteen which which uh, is roughly 60, 70 years after that, uh, Estonia finally became independent uh, in sort of the model, modern sense of uh, what a nation state is. So uh, the, the the song uh, was so instrumental, even in our early history, uh, meaning uh, at least uh, the, in the last 150 years, uh, in, in ultimately uh, forming the country uh, of Estonia as, as, as we recognize uh, now. Even though, of course, the people have been there for, for, for many thousands of years. Well, the Estonian people have been there for many thousands of years. In 1939, they found their freedom once again threatened. During World War II, Estonia was in a very bad position. I mean, really caught between a rock and, the hard, and a hard place. Um, what had happened uh, in 1939... Um, Stalin's and, and Hitler made a deal. It was called the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact um, that was um, made by their foreign ministers. And basically, they divided up Europe, and uh, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, the Baltic countries, were assigned to the Soviet sphere. But um, they went to war. It was supposed to hold off war, but they went to war anyway. And so the Germans occupied Estonia, the uh, the Soviet Union occupied Estonia, went back and forth until, in the end, the Soviet Union ended up uh, occupying Estonia. After the German occupation of Estonia, the Soviet Union reoccupied Estonia starting in 1944, a period of occupation that would last nearly 50 years. But in the late 70s and 80s, living in Sweden, just on the edge of the Soviet Union, was music professor Dr. Stephen Pearson. Uh, Soviet, um, very, very powerful force, very influential in that part of the world, Scandinavia and Eastern Europe and all along the border, of course, you have this big Iron Curtain, as Winston Churchill called it, that uh, in many places was practically impenetrable. Some places you could get through, but only under close supervisions. I know I was followed there. Uh, everybody had to stay at the Vero Hotel, and it, <clears throat> and they had all of the rooms wired so that there was uh, they were keeping tabs on you. There was a lady on every um, floor who checked to make sure when you came and went, kept tabs on you, and we knew we were being listened to because uh, I had a roommate and uh, one of the. Uh, light bulbs had burned out and so we were 
talking among ourselves. I wonder what we need to do to get a new light bulb. All of a sudden, there was a knock on the door, and there was the lady from the hall with a new light bulb for us. So they pretty much gave themselves away in terms of how things were happening. But when you know that you've been followed and listened to your entire time in a country, it takes a while when you leave that country to get out of that mindset. It was so depressing to be followed. I remember coming back feeling almost paranoid, like looking over my shoulder. You know, when my relatives came to see me at the hotel, they put their uh, finger to their lips and show, you know, don't talk here, it's not safe, you're being listened to. Um, just to live in that kind of a repressive society where, you know, you're not supposed to go to church. Uh, I know that my um, my aunt had been very uh, active with the church and made the church linens for her uh, church. Uh, and most Estonians are Lutheran, um, and and sh- and she and they were um, there were things said. You know, they were watched because this was not something uh, that um, the well, of course, the Soviets and you know, under communism. Uh, they uh, have an atheistic society. So this, it was important that Estonia regain its independence and to keep the culture alive. I'll have to say that quite honestly, I really did not think I would see it in my lifetime. But it was important to keep things going so that perhaps at some time when the, when the time was ripe um, that uh, it, Estonia could, you know, reassert its independence. The song festival served as a way for Estonians to keep their culture alive. A bit of hope in a very dark time. But then things started to change. During the song festivals, there were always certain songs that were sung that had sort of a patriotic and very special meaning, even during the Soviet times. And since there were so many people there, they couldn't stop it. But in the late 80s, what they started doing was they uh, brought like the blue, black, and white Estonian colors together so that somebody came with blue, somebody came with white, somebody came with black, and and so they kind of made the Estonian flag, and of course that was well received because even though the Soviet Union tried to stamp out any kind of nationalism, um, it was alive and people kept it alive and, you know, passed it on down. And by 1989, um there was a movement started for independence. And it starts with things that we take for granted. But for example, flying the flag. The Estonian flag is um, blue, black, and white. It's very distinctive, but it was not allowed to be shown, not allowed to be owned. I don't, I don't think it was, yeah, I think it was illegal to own one. Um, but in one of the trips that we went over there, it was the first day people were allowed to fly the flag, and there were flags everywhere. So obviously somebody had owned them. <laughs> and, um, and they were everywhere, all up and down the streets, and it was an amazing sight. Um, there was also a um, movement to be critical of and to denounce the policies of the Soviet leader, Joseph Stalin, who had quite uh, um, a negative effect on on Estonia during the war and after the war, especially World War II being the war. 
um, his policies were quite brutal and very, very violent and very murderous. And uh, this led to a massive decrease in the overall Estonian population in general. Hundreds of thousands of people died in World War II, either at the hands of the, of the Soviet army or at the hands of the German army. Uh, and many people fled um, as they could, anywhere they could, to Finland or across the Baltic to Sweden, eventually some ending up in Canada, where there are substantial Estonian communities today. Um, so there was public denouncements. Uh, there, were, there were political leaders who were openly denouncing Stalin and his effect on the country. And one of the times we were there, we went to a concert that was given in memory of the victims of Stalin. That was the first time that had ever been done. It was very, very moving, very quiet. It was a very quiet, somber uh, atmosphere in the audience. And the, the stadium, the, it was a concert hall, but it looked like a stadium was full of people. It was a very, very moving experience. So this was all happening. The, the combination of, of, of these demonstrations uh, that, that grew larger and larger, and then uh, uh, it, it moved beyond the, the student community, and then the general population became involved. And then, then, then combine that with, with a song, uh, because uh, the, the, uh, the Soviets did not allow uh, the singing of, of uh, patriotic songs. But uh, by by this by the, the the kind of courage that people had and the sort of understanding that they had passed this resolution in Parliament, uh, I mean they they were they just felt freer uh, and and uh, the ability to to sing songs that really really move people um, and uh, and I think song and music is is always something that that uh, uh, is 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 important to everyone. Uh, but when you when, when you feel like you've been oppressed, uh, as Estonia was for, for nearly 50 years at that point, uh, uh, the sense that we can, we can move away from that uh, and these patriotic songs, there was just an incredible combination of events coming together uh, that, that uh, uh, sort of made the Estonians feel that, uh, that, that uh, they really need to exert uh, their, their own identity and move away from Moscow as, as, as much as they possibly can. The singing brought it together. And the nice thing about what happened in Estonia was that it was all nonviolent. It was, uh, the song held everybody together, but it was really part of the national spirit. It really uh, held everyone together and they had a common cause. The 1990 Song Festival became a national event. It, it had, the Song Festivals had always been national events, but this became much, much, much larger. Um, perhaps as many as 600,000 people and in a country of, of a million and a half. That's a big chunk of the people. <laughs> so um, they came and they, the Song Festival, they, there was great singing of national songs, um, two or three in particular that gave hope for a new, free, independent Estonian nation. Indirectly, uh, the words, very careful. <laughs> Their choice of words are very, very careful, but still people, not, not only the, and I'm not exaggerating when I say a choir of 35,000 people on a stage, which is enormous, the song festival grounds are enormous, 
but people in the audience, all hundreds of thousands, stood up and sung, sang these songs. And people remember that, you know, to this day and still talk about it. And right after that, they began the political process of distancing themselves from the Soviet Union towards eventual separation, a cessation from the Soviet Union. Part of it, the big part of the thing that happened, and this was in actually uh, 1991, was uh, the um, the coup in um, the Soviet Union, where the Soviet Union actually fell, and that opened the door for the other uh, for the the countries that were occupied by the Soviet Union to assert their independence, and that's really what happened at that point. Estonia declared independence, seceded from the, the Soviet Union. Um, Gorbachev eventually is restored to power, I believe, after a week or two. I remember this very well because um, we had been there the week before. <laughs> and um, it was um, very, we were very afraid for our friends there because the Soviet army was moving in and with their tanks and with their personnel carriers and with their heavy weapons, and we didn't know what would happen. Latvia and Lithuania had had quite a bit of violence, and we were really quite frightened. And our, our um, some of my best friends lived across from the radio station, which is be one of their main targets. The Soviet Union sent tanks and troops into Estonia to try and squash this uprising against them, but something unexpected happened. The Soviet army simply stopped. Um, one thing is that uh, truck drivers parked their trucks on the roads so the tanks had difficulty getting by. People lined the roads and they sang to the tanks that were going by. Mm -hmm. They sang to these invaders, really. Uh, that's how they would have been considered. It was completely nonviolent. There were no, um, not, there were no violent um, reactions to, this, to this, these troops marching. And it's been documented that no one was injured, no one was killed. And eventually they pull out, and eventually uh, I think the United States recognizes Estonia as an, a sovereign independent nation within a month, and then they're accepted three weeks later into the United Nations. So it happened very quickly. <laughs> it happened uh, and peacefully, and uh, they call it the singing revolution. So I think music and singing in general are very positive. And so the music and singing help to keep people positive and in a good frame of mind, even when things were gloomy and dark and you know things seemed hopeless, but somehow, um, you know, you hear in some of the songs like, uh, whenever I feel afraid, I hold myself erect and, you know, um, whistle a happy tune or something that, you know, it, it just really, um, it brought the people together. It gave them the resolve that they could actually do something. And uh, I think there there is something to be said for that. And it was also a, a way that people could meet. You know, if you're meeting for song practice, it's kind of a non-threatening thing. But at the same time, you can sneak some little politics in there. So, yeah. Sneaking politics into music, using music to keep their culture alive, allowed the Estonian people to keep and find their freedom through music. After they had regained their independence, Stephen Pearson interviewed many Estonians for his PhD dissertation, and there was a phrase that kept coming up. 
we sang ourselves free. Several, actually, people use that same phrase, we sang ourselves free. Uh, and they used it in different ways. A political freedom, they, they felt that that was true. But they said there was another kind of freedom. There was a personal, there was a, a personal internal freedom that they felt free from um, guilt, free from fear, free from um, the constant anxiety that they lived under in the Soviet rule, um, free from the past repression, you know, that there was a new Estonia on the horizon, there was a new, poss new possibilities on the way. And um, it was, you know, generally either specifically um, confirmed or indirectly confirmed by almost everyone that I talked to. So it's, it, it, it's not just one person's kind of naive idea, but it was very consistent. Gilda was among those to attend the first song festival after Estonia had regained its independence. It was, uh, it was wonderful. It was just so exciting to be there. Uh, and uh, we remember, you know, my cousin took us to some towns and we remember in a few places seeing um, the, the cart uh, that was bringing the uh, it's like the Olympic flame, but it's the song festival flame, and it goes all over Estonia, and they bring it to the uh, song f festival grounds, and we saw that as it was traveling through Estonia in different places where uh, you know our travels just happened to intersect, and then going to the song festival, it was just such an exciting thing. You know, the par they have a parade before uh, it starts, and uh, and just being part of that was uh, it it's a wonderful experience. I think it's it's these sometimes these smaller countries that have suffered so terribly under the hands of great violent repressors have great lessons to teach people like us who haven't maybe had that experience. And maybe it's our turn to listen to them and to listen to what they have to say. They were the people who sat in the gulag. They were the people who's, you know, pastors were murdered or sent off never to be heard from again or um, suffered themselves terribly, either directly or indirectly, either violently or nonviolently. Um, the pressure was always there and sometimes it got almost overwhelming. But singing in the midst of all that singing um, kept things focused and, and centered on Christ. And that's, that's their testimony and it's a great one. Back when they danced outside of time Before the stars would rule the night There was a dove flew all the deep, deep water And that's when he heard the voice of the lion start to speak And then there was light uh, this is Dave Radford from the Grey Havens, a pop folk duo from uh, the Chicago area. Which one do you choose to paint the sky? Blue was the one that one body shares it with the others in the evening and dawn. The rest of the colors were falling down. The water came together and that's when they heard the voice of the lion name the ground. I'm still dancing to the music from a garden that was so much brighter than 
with the echoes from a long forgotten song escaping from my lungs within and you can feel the movement through the overture that's playing if you listen to the end because it's you know the universal language uh, music has uh, been a part of every known culture um, that you know history has ever seen as something that is valuable to people. So there's kind of this universality to the power of music. That doesn't say why it's powerful, but it just says that, um, you know, it, it almost doesn't need proving that it is powerful, um, just given that fact. But, I mean, I would say that music has a way, it has an entrance to the heart or the soul that no other piece of culture has a claim on. Or... Lewis would put it like uh, stories um, create a willing suspension of disbelief. So the guardians, the trolls, or whatever, at the gates of my heart that are censoring all the, you know, um, words that would tell me how to live my life, etc. Um, somehow the gates are not shut on music. Um, because it's not taken as a dogmatic you must feel or do or think this way and so the, the censors aren't uh, strict and so more truth, more of the content of what's actually being said in the music is able to sneak past I mean another Lewis quote, you know is sneak past the watchful dragons so and enter and affect the heart in a way that that nothing else can. brighter than with the echoes from a long forgotten song escaping from my lungs within and you can feel the movement through the overtures playing if you listen to the end because the dove and the composer will be dancing when the lion comes again because the dove and the composer will be dancing when the lion comes again. I'm Sarah Groves, and I am a singer-songwriter from St. Paul, Minnesota. I know what you're saying, it's my native tongue. Heard it as a child, and it's For me, the reason I'm getting out of bed isn't necessarily all about music. You know, I know some people who are, um, they are so absorbed, you know, with music. I would say it's that communication piece and the, I'm usually working out something and I'm trying to figure out or name something in my own life. And uh, that type of, you know, working with metaphor, working with some kind of story that helps me ah, you know, finally understand myself or understand what the heck is happening in my marriage or what it feels like to raise kids. You know, those are the things I'm after, I guess. I That's what gets me out of bed in the morning. And, and then I would say um, uh, another compelling reason is to 
ask the questions about, you know, who is God and then and think more broadly about his character. You know, uh, Charlie Peacock is always saying, telling me, uh, God is the ocean and we keep writing about a cup of water. And so I think I, my attempt is to just continue to pull back, you know, and write about that, the ocean. I mean, really endless possibility. I have been doing this at some level or in some form since I was a very, very little girl. And <clears throat> my mom would find out, you know, basically what was going on in my life. Because I was a pretty compliant child, you know, rolled, I'd go along with everything and do my part. And uh, so she'd hear about my frustrations and my, you know, just how I was really feeling through these little songs that I was writing. And I've done that as long as I can remember. So for me, that was just like some people go biking, some people punch a wall, you know. For me, I went to the piano room. My mom was a classically trained pianist. And so we had a room in the house, even though we only had three bedrooms. Mom and dad had a room. All the girls shared the other room. And then um, we had a piano room. So uh, the really, you know, for me, the moving moments in my life where you can hear someone give a sermon or something, or you can hear someone share an idea or whatever, but then you hear, you know, I mean, Peter Gabriel sings Mercy Street. And I don't even know at that point what the song's about. I don't know that it's about this very, you know, troubled poet and all this stuff. I just know that you know, Mercy Street, swear they moved that sign searching for Mercy Street. And it's like, holy cow. Yeah. Um, where you're inside out, you know, it's just, uh, um, to me the that whole method of, of telling a story without maybe going into all the details, you know, and, um, and having to, you know, you can establish character in a pretty short amount of time. Like, and maybe there's a loving God. I have this girl laying in the backyard and she's just, um, she's lost, you know, and uh, I think you just have a couple lines that establish that pretty well, I think. I think you feel like you know her pretty well with just a couple lines of of, uh, of biography about her. So she's meeting with a counselor. Her mom doesn't know what to do with her, you know, and so right there you have, I don't know, you can identify with her or not. Native tongue was my processing um uh, I have just started going to a new church and I grew up in a very strong denominational context in the assemblies of God. Uh, and I am a sort of dynasty family. I come from a family that has been the, the story of the, of the assemblies and the story of my family are as interwoven as it gets. And my, uh, my great grandmother was at Azusa street, which was the birthplace of that movement. And, um, my, you know, great grandfather was the superintendent of the Assemblies of God in the 1950s. And so I have these, a strong, um, a sense of, uh, you know, identity. It's, it's, I'm fourth generation Assemblies of God. My kids, I married, you know, I went to, my dad taught it at an AOG, um, liberal arts college. And so my history is intertwined with this story and this, um, you know, a strong sort of denominational form. And when I started going out uh, on the road, I just was exposed to the greater body of Christ. And it's hard to put that stuff, you know, Pandora's box. It's just, it's impossible to unknow things that you know. And I just have experienced the greater body of Christ at such a level that, um, you know, I remember Michael Card years ago telling me, everywhere you go, you'll find living branches and you'll find dead wood. And um, that's been true of every place I've ever been. And sometimes there's a lot of living branches and sometimes it feels like there's a lot of dry, you know, a lot of uh, um, 
you know, worship, but, but maybe not in spirit and in truth. So um, anyway, this was my processing where I've come from and saying like, I would go then back to my context, back to the AOG. And I would, I would, I, I understand what you're saying. And obviously native tongue is maybe a play on uh, the assemblies puts an emphasis on, you know, the Pentecostal experience. And so that's also a play on that. But um, these are experiences that I, I, I value. I don't want to throw the whole thing away. I, I know that um, Jars of Clay did a, their last record or when they did the record inland, uh, they told a story about running the ships up onto the sh- up onto the shore and getting off the boat and burning the ships and moving inland. And they were talking about some of the similar things, like the evangelical culture has has kind of turned into this cruise ship. And uh, a lot of us, as I think, as artists, are feeling like, "Wow, I don't know where I identify anymore," because so many aspects of this are feel like they're steeped in American culture instead of in Kingdom culture. And so. Um, and so, but my feeling when they told that story was, I'm not sure I can light the ship on fire because people, I have a bunch of people I love still on board. And so how do I grow and and discover and follow God and follow Christ and really have some pretty radical changes to my, you know, my theology, I guess. And, um, and, and still stay in step and in relationship with all these friends that I love and care for and who I, I understand what you're talking about, you know. So this song was my way of kind of processing that. I know what you're you're talking about, but I'm, I'm looking for something a little bit older, you know, a little bit more ancient than 1914. And um, so, yeah, that's that's what that's about. For more about Estonia's revolution, I'd recommend checking out the documentary, The Seeing Revolution. Thanks to Sarah Grove and Dave Radford of The Great Havens for sharing their thoughts and music with us. You can find out more about them and all of our guests at refractedreality.com. We'll be back in December with a special Christmas episode of Refracted Reality. I'm Josh Kloss. Thanks for listening.